previously on Suspicion. There are two different types of ammunition in the revolver, so they'll be able to tie each shot to its particular order. She prepaid for both of their cremations. She made funeral arrangements for both of them. In the hospital, he says, I think my wife is trying to kill me because she had this doctor that said, well, he may have dementia. Then a new attorney general was elected, and he made it a priority. He said, this case is in our lap. I'm serious. He assigned a team of his prosecutors, and, and they brought the case forward. Nearly six years to the day West Knoxville barber David Leith was found shot to death in his bed, his widow, Raynella Dossett Leith, is about to stand trial in front of a national audience for killing him. This woman is not guilty of killing her beloved David. That voice belongs to Knoxville attorney James A.H. Bell. On this frosty March day in 2009, Bell walks into Knox County Criminal Court, flanked by a team of experts from all over the country and a mass of journalists. The trial will be broadcast on national television. The Leith case has gained widespread national and local media coverage. Accused of shooting her husband in 2003, then trying to make it look like a suicide. Raynella averts her cold, blue eyes as she passes rows of TV cameras lining the hallway outside the courtroom. Absolutely. And finally, his soul can rest. Journalist Jamie Satterfield is here to tell us a little bit about Raynella and the reputation she has at this point and how folks are looking at her today in court. Raynella is an imposing figure by any account. She's very tall. She stands with her back ramrod straight. She has steely blue eyes, carefully styled gray hair. She rarely shows any kind of emotion. She's a widow twice over, a mother, a grandmother, and a nurse. But it's another label that Raynella now wears that has all eyes and cameras trained on her today. Black Widow. From the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network, Tennessee, this is Suspicion. Well, here's a woman whose first husband was a chief prosecutor of the county. He died under curious circumstances, would be a fair statement. And then sometime later, her second husband died. Jim Ballack is one of the many journalists gathered at the courthouse. He's been writing about Raynella for years. When her first husband, Knox County DA Ed Dossett, was found dead in 1992, when her son died in a car crash in 1994, when she opened fire on the husband of Dossett's lover in 1995, when her second husband, Leith, was found dead in 2003, 
when Leith's daughter, Cindy Wilkerson, sued Rainella in 2006. The allegation was that Rainella shot him and killed him in the civil lawsuit. Now, in the answer to the lawsuit, Rainella said, no, it was Cindy Wilkerson who shot him and killed him. It, it did quite a turn of events. And he wrote about her when Rainella officially became an accused black widow in 2008. Not only did it prompt a lot of talk and discussion in the community, it prompted the uh, special prosecutor to go back and charge Rainella with Ed Dotson's death, ultimately. It's that talk in the community that Bell is worried about as he takes his seat at the defense table in March of 2009. Well, you've heard Bell got us prohibited from using the term Black Widow. That's Richard Fisher. He's the fellow who convinced a grand jury to put Rainella on trial today. We don't prosecute people without a reasonable belief that they're guilty. He's joined at the prosecution table by these folks. I'm Mac McCoy. My actual given name is Joseph McCoy, but people call me Mac. Cindy LaCroix-Schimmel. I was an assistant district attorney in the 10th Judicial District. I was mainly in Bradley County, but assisted with some of the pro tem cases around in other counties. Jamie Satterfield and Matt Lakin know the actors in this courtroom drama about to play out on national TV. Jamie, you've talked to Mr. Fisher and Mr. McCoyne. Who are they and how do they end up seated at the prosecution table? Richard Fisher and Mac McCoyne are veteran prosecutors out of Cleveland, Tennessee. They were assigned to the 10th Judicial District, which is down around Chattanooga area. They are uh, really good friends, and if you can uh, remember the Muppet Show, the two old guys that sat in the balcony, that is Richard Fisher and Mac McCoyne when you put the two guys in the same room together. And Matt, what can you tell us about Miss Schimmel? Uh, she's not a lady to be crossed. Uh, very intelligent, very detail-oriented. Uh, she is a former defense lawyer. She used to assist on appeals of death penalty cases. So one of her jobs is to uh, organize all the various records in this case. There are, I think she said, uh, over a dozen uh, notebooks full of records, medical records, police records, and she knows what's in every single one of them. Why are there prosecutors out of Cleveland trying a case in Knox County? Uh, Because the Knox County District Attorney General, Randy Nichols, was a friend of Ed Dossett and actually owes his job to Ed Dossett's death. He was appointed to replace Ed after Ed's death, uh, supposedly under the hooves of his cattle. Okay. So, Jamie, what can you tell us about Jim Bell? Jim Bell is a ringmaster. He's a showman. He brings an entire team into a courtroom. It courts the media in terms of making statements on behalf of his clients. He's very aggressive. Um, He fights tooth and nail with the prosecution, sometimes over things that shouldn't even be fought over. He's he's just a very aggressive, colorful fella. Jim Bell is known for his folksy stories. He's an older fella, been a defense attorney in Knoxville for decades, um, has handled uh, many, many high-profile cases and continues today to handle many pro- high-profile cases. He actually, though, in this case, was friends with Raynella and Ed Dossett. 
And uh, he also was friends with David Leith. So his involvement in, in this case on trial is, is more the result of the fact that he it was friends with all of these folks and uh, felt obligated when Raynella sought legal counsel. But he's come loaded for bear. You know, he's going to win this case. That's his attitude. Now let's talk about who's going to referee this courtroom battle. Judge Richard Baumgartner. I deny the state petition to disinter the body. Matt, Jamie, you've already asked people about the judge. Here's former medical examiner Randall Pedigo. Uh, I thought he was a fine judge. And firearms expert Don Carmen. Very good with the jury, and he seemed like uh, he was very fair-handed with both prosecution and defense. And Knoxville attorney Joshua Hedrick. When I started practicing... He was a kind judge to young lawyers. He helped me. He made the right decisions. He was the kind of judge that you could go to and you knew, I'm in front of Judge Baumgartner, so I think it'll be okay. And finally, there's the jury, a group of 12 Knox County residents. Matt, what is Baumgartner telling them about the case? Well, they're going to be forced to stick to a very limited set of facts. Uh, They're going to know that she's charged with first-degree murder and the death of her husband, David Leith, They're not going to hear about uh, her previous husband's death. They know he died of a gunshot wound. They know that she's accused of firing the fatal shot. And they're going to know that she denies it and says that it was a suicide or that someone else killed him. But that's all they know about her? They know she's Dossett's widow. And they also know that David Leith's daughter, Cindy Wilkerson, has sued Raynella over her father's death. But you're saying that's all the judge has told them. Surely they know more about her at this point. I mean, there are all kinds of cameras around. Well, they might. And part of the jury selection process is to quiz potential jurors on what they bring into the courtroom, what they've heard on television or read in the paper or any other, you know, Internet about a particular case or a defendant. They're supposed to set all that aside. Right. And the judge has already weeded out folks from this pool who say, I absolutely cannot give this lady a fair trial for for whatever reason. So so folks that admitted bias, they're gone. But simply because someone knows about Raynella, the fact that they may know that she was Ed Dossett's widow and that he died, the fact that they may even know that she shot at a man, Steve Walker, none of that disqualifies them from being on a jury. The question is, whatever you know, can you set it aside and base your decision solely on what you're going to hear in the courtroom? Can you be fair? And we have a panel now selected, 12 people in the box with a couple of alternates, all of who say, yes, I can be fair to both sides in this case. And the judges warned them against holding anything from Raynell's past against her. The only issue in this trial is whether the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Raynella Leith is responsible for the death of David Leith. I don't think you could have had a better jury. Fisher has just delivered his opening statement. What's he saying about Raynella? Well, Fisher isn't holding back. He says she's a cold-blooded killer, that she drugged David Leith, she shot him, and staged it to look like a suicide. He's telling this jury that she's crafty, um, that she set the stage for suicide long before she ever pulled the trigger. 
And he's also saying that she staged an alibi. So he's painting a picture of Raynella as a woman who got tired of her husband and started plotting to get rid of him in a way that she wouldn't be accused. Who else was there to do it? So, Matt, what's Bell saying in his opening statement? Uh, Bell's defense is that David killed himself and that they can prove it. Raynella's a loving grandmother, uh, the finest lady you could ever meet, a caring nurse, a grieving widow who cannot understand why she's falsely accused of killing this man who was her best friend. This is Raynella Dawson Leith, the finest client that any lawyer, any person in America could ever want. And also that Raynella is being framed by a greedy daughter-in-law who wants to get full control of a farm that he says is worth $18 million. Uh, There's some question as to whether that figure was inflated. And we have two more characters in court today, don't we, Jamie? We have two props. One is a dummy, and it's used in most murder cases, and it's where the prosecution and the defense can use this dummy's body to show, for instance, direction of travel on bullets, uh, where the wounds are, uh, the trajectory, direction of travel, all of that kind of stuff. And we also have a bed, the bed that David Leith was found dead in. Jim Bell took this bed and had it shipped to California with a tractor trailer followed by a police escort in order that the bed could be examined by one of his experts in this case. So what he's now done is he's actually gotten permission to set up this bed in the courtroom, and both he and the prosecution will be using this bed to show jurors exactly what it looked like. They've even brought in the nightstands and and other things that were in the bedroom at the time. So they've recreated this bedroom, essentially, and that's very unusual. Judges do not like props in in a criminal case. They don't like theatrics. So the fact that Jim Bell has made the bed itself a prop in this case is very unusual. So is there a reason that he would have allowed props in this specific case? The reason that the judge allowed the bed to come in, to to actually come into the courtroom, is because the key issue here is suicide or murder. How these bullets struck the bed, the blood spatter, the pattern of blood, uh, any brain matter, gunshot residue, all of those things, they want the jury to be able to see it as it was. And the judge was reluctant, but Jim Bell, being Jim Bell, was very forceful and convinced the judge that jurors actually needed to see this bed uh, rather than simply photos or videos. And so would someone have laid down in the bed just like David was laying when they found him? What I anticipate is that they will be using the dummy in the bed to, to show the position of David Lee's body. Jurors have now heard for the first time Raynella's voice. The state's first witness is Knox County Sheriff's Office Sergeant David Amburn. When he showed up, Raynello was laying on the ground, face down. We came up and said something to her, touched her. She jumped up and went into hysterics. 
she says, help him, help him. Uh, somebody shot him, said who? She said, my husband. We put on initially uh, the first responders to the scene who saw her out on the front lawn and who testified to the fact that when she was seen by them, when she saw them, she started crying and creating a, uh, I, w- I don't want to say scene, but certainly crying and, and hysterical. Now, they, I believe, testified that she wasn't like that until she was seen by them. Okay. Almost on cue. It would appear. Jurors see photos and video of Leith dead in the bed. He is lying on his right side. He has a, a pillow between his legs. He is lying with his, his left arm across his chest and his right arm a little bit below him. As they're working on the scene, they notice that there is a bullet entry into the headboard. So they pull the bed and they discover that the bullet has gone through the headboard and into the drywall. And they cut out a part of the wallboard and they recover the bullet. They move the sheets and find another bullet hole into the mattress. And that is sort of near his waist, not too far away from where the muzzle of the gun is, is found. And that bullet is going into the mattress. Jurors see a breakfast tray on the nightstand. Oatmeal, juice, milk. She had fixed that morning a tray of food and put by his bed. Interestingly enough, as I recall, there was no blood on that tray. Jurors see a Bible in the bathroom. It's open. Leith's reading glasses are laying atop Psalm 69, which says, Save me, O God, for For the the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. So, Matt, what has the prosecution done here with these crime scene witnesses? They're just laying their foundation. Uh, to them, Rainella is acting strangely from the start. The whole scene looks staged, if you look at it through their eyes, beginning with that particular Bible verse. What do you think she was, if, if, if the theory is that she staged that, what was she trying to make you think with that verse? That he was he thinking was, about suicide. He was going to heaven and he wanted to. Use whatever comfort he could have to get there. And it had uh, reading glasses. They were laying on it. And his educational level was not real high. Was it eighth or ninth? It wasn't much. I don't know. She was the one that was staging the whole thing. I know, but he wasn't a big reader is what I'm saying. They're going to hone in on all the things that to them are wrong with this picture that David Leith looks like. He was asleep in bed when he was shot, covered up with the pillow between his legs, and... The fact that there's more than one gunshot, three gunshots. The research indicates that multiple gunshot wound suicides are much more common than people think. It's a big decision to make. And so it is not uncommon for people to hesitate. And if you hesitate, you can miss. That's something that I think people can understand easily. What do you do if you put the gun up to your head a little too high? And so it looks all right, but when you pull the trigger, the recoil sends your bullet over your head. That's not unreasonable to think that that might happen. Or you're not holding the gun tightly enough and you don't have as much control over your recoil and you miss. Or you flinch and you miss because you flinched. Jeff 
Jamie, what's next for the prosecution? Building a case for murder. Don Carmen, a firearms expert, is helping the prosecutors show the order of those three shots, one into the headboard, one into David Leaf's forehead, and one into the mattress. They sent me a revolver, Colt 38 Special, police positive model, which is a, a somewhat old farm made between 1928 and 1930. Three live rounds, .38 Special, and three fired .38 Special cartridge cases, and three bullets, fired bullets. So the order of the shots makes a difference because the gun that was used was a thirty-eight police positive Colt. That's a, it's a 1922. So it's what they would describe as a simple but effective gun. And it's a revolver, which means that it doesn't eject its shells. And if you think about a revolver, I mean, I think anybody can, can picture a revolver, like cowboy guns. It's got a cylinder, and the cylinder rotates. In, in this particular instance, the cylinder rotates clockwise, which means when you pull the trigger, it fires around to, to fire the gun. It rotates clockwise for each pull of the trigger. And so each time it rotates, you get a new round under the hammer to be fired. What that means is that you have your shells in the order they were fired. If you start under the hammer, you can go down and, and count. This was, this was the most recent one, and this was the one before that, and this was the one before that. In this case, it made a difference because we had two different types of ammunition loaded into the weapon. Some of the ammunition in the weapon was Remington, and some of the ammunition was Winchester. If you picture like a clock on the wall, at the 12 o'clock position, there is a fired Winchester cartridge case. So the next one to the right would be approximately at the 2 o'clock position is a fired Remington cartridge case. The third one at the 4 o'clock position is a fired Remington cartridge case. So since this is going in a clockwise position, the one Remington cartridge case at the 4 o'clock position would be the first one fired. The one at the 2 o'clock position, the Remington, uh, would be the second one fired. The one right underneath the firing pin that is the Winchester cartridge case, and that uh, would be the last one fired. So either the first shot hit the headboard wall or the first shot hit him. That's correct. The, the significance of that should be apparent, that if we assume that what you're looking at in the pistol, then the last one to be fired is the one that goes into the mattress. And the concern is that if that's so, it would have been fired after David Leith was shot in the head. Hedrick points out, though, that a bullet through the head doesn't mean a subsequent one could not be fired. The severing of the brainstem will cut off your voluntary movement. It will not necessarily cut off any involuntary movement. And muscle spasms do occur. It's not common, it's not frequent, but it's not impossible. But Knox County Medical Examiner Dorinka Malusnik-Polchan says there's no way that David Leith could have fired that third shot. 
what was your conclusion about whether he could have involuntarily exercised that amount of pressure? He couldn't. The first response of the body is flaccid paralysis. So there is no jerking with people talk about it, you know, whatever. With, with brainstem being so devastated and severed, he would just become immediately limp. So there is no pulling trigger. His brainstem was severed. That evidence what about was clear. this idea of, oh, my last gasp? There's no last gasp once you sever that. It's over. And Malusnik was real, real clear on that. Yeah, she was clear on it. So if prosecutors are telling the jury that David Leith couldn't have fired the third shot, that means someone else must have done it, right? Well, that's not all they're saying. There was a mixture of drugs in his system. I believe... It was what you would call an unusual mixture. Demerol, promethazine, and norpramine. And it's kind of like a pre-op that you would give in a hospital before somebody goes in. It was exactly like a pre-op. It's a problem. It's a, it's a disturbing uh, finding. And again, when you take all of these three together, well, you are not jumping out of bed in the morning, I can tell you that. <laughs> it's a little bit of a problem. What's the significance here? If the state is suggesting he would have been too drugged to shoot himself, maybe even to sit up in bed, probably unconscious. But the defense isn't letting that go unchallenged? Oh, by no means. Uh, Bell has his own expert, Dr. Glenn Farr, who's a professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of Tennessee. And Dr. Farr downplays the impact of those drugs on David Leith and the ability to shoot himself. Now, it would be kind of like having a couple of beers. Uh, he, his reaction time would be slowed a little, but it would still be able to. As a matter of science, these medications and these levels, they might make you a little sleepy in the sense that Benadryl might make you a little, like if you took a Benadryl or you took some other kind of antihistamine, but it's not going to keep you in a bed. It's not going to keep you from, from getting up and walking around and doing things. The state was kind of stuck, right? Because neither of their two theories makes a lot of sense. They have to explain both the three shots and the fact that uh, David doesn't, apparently, doesn't fight back. Those two work together in the sense that you may surprise me with the first shot, but I'm going to fight you on the second or third. You could catch me asleep, but if you don't hit, if you don't kill me with the first shot, uh, and we have to assume that's true, right, because otherwise there's no reason for second and third shots. I'm going to get up and I'm going to take the gun because I've got nothing to lose. You've already shot at me. What, are you going to shoot me? If I lie here, you're going to shoot me. So they need him to be incapacitated. But first of all, as a matter of science, he's not incapacitated. Second of all, even if he were incapacitated, that makes the three shots dumb. Think about it as, as an explanation for how this happened. The, expl the explanation they're advancing is she drugged him so that he couldn't get out of bed. And then, with him drugged unconscious, she missed him. And so she had to try again. And she missed him again. And it took her three tries to shoot the unconscious man. And that's nonsense. So, in either direction, the theories don't work. Did... David have a prescription for those drugs? No, and there's no explanation for how those drugs wound up in his system. 
So the state is certainly reminding jurors that Raynella once served as head of nursing at Park West Hospital. There seems to be this inference that because of her position, she may have had access, but she was not working. She had retired from Park West at the time. It was certainly our theory that she had obtained that to make him groggy the morning that she shot him, or I guess I should say she allegedly shot him. That would equate, one of the doctors said to a glass or two or wine, you know, probably never know, but that that morning he was groggy. And the defense brings out their experts who say, well, even with these drugs in his system, he still could have shot himself. Did someone shoot him? Can you say that? No. Why not? Because all of the shots are trajectories that he himself could have accomplished, and they're all within range. Is there any proof that Raynella had access to the drugs in David's system? The state tried to insinuate that because she had access to the hospital and the people knew her at the hospital, that she could have gotten these drugs. But, you know, it became clear in the testimony, and I think should come as no surprise to your listeners, that that's not really how a hospital works that you can't just borrow some drugs from the pharmacy because you used to work there, particularly uh, things like Demerol. That's not the way it works. So prosecutors have some more theories about David Leith that also point the finger at Raynella, right? Prosecutors are saying that David Leith is just too vain to shoot himself in the face, that he was a pretty boy, Uh, that he got uh, plastic surgery, that's how uh, concerned he was about his looks, that he always dressed sharply when he went out, took care of himself, worked out. Um, So this is not a man that would uh, take his own life by shooting himself in the face. And on top of that, he's missing an eye on the side where he has been shot. They find that highly suspicious that he would shoot himself in the one spot he can't see. He's not the kind of guy to shoot himself in the head. He, he only had one eye gone. Yes, he already had one eye from a hunting accident 20-something years ago, and he was shot over his blind eye. So the, if you were going to shoot somebody, I mean, this isn't a bad eye. It's totally blind. He's a one-eyed man. He was scared of guns. He would he would have been afraid he'd messed his you know, body up or his face up that, he would have been left, you know, a vegetable. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have wanted that. The prosecution is also attacking this notion of suicide by calling witnesses, including David Leith's daughter, to say that David Leith was scared of guns. He actually had to call a family member to put down a dog because he didn't like to mess with firearms. The defense, of course, disputes that. And then there's this weird thing about cremation. Matt, do you remember what that is Uh, about? Supposedly he had a religious belief against cremation. That's actually not unusual among a lot of old-time Protestant churches, the belief that uh, you need to be all in one piece when Jesus comes to raise you from the dead. And David was a a very religious man. He and Renella attended church uh, together. But what we've learned from the trial today is that Raynella had bought a cremation package for herself and for David Leith years before the shooting. So what exactly is the prosecution's theory about all this? She had it all planned out. She paid to have him cremated without telling him. Very unusual. 
Honey, I didn't tell you I paid cash. She did that sometime, like a couple of years or so, my understanding, you know, before this happened. And and you didn't know anything about no. that, right? He didn't talk about that? No, my dad didn't know anything about it. Now, and, and talk about that a little bit. Why were you, you know, you were fairly insistent that, that cremation would not my be My dad something. was against that. He didn't believe in being cremated. So he talked about it? Mm-hmm. He always said that he just, you know, he, he didn't believe in that. So, Matt, what about all the talk about David Leith's dementia? How has that played into the prosecution's case? Uh, the prosecution says it's bogus. Uh, they say Dr. Maluznik uh, examined David's brain very carefully, uh, took slides, looked for all the telltale traces of Alzheimer's disease, and saw nothing. I mean, f- for someone with your skill, this is something visible. This is oh, not absolutely. something that, that you have to sort of mysteriously find. It's very visible. It's very visible. We cannot miss it. And I had a proper, of course, you know, to diagnose uh, Alzheimer's dem- dementia, especially different severities and kind of forms, you know, I would need to sample at least 14 different areas. But that was not the question. The question was just kind of binary, yes or no. And for that, I have actually really a couple of really classic, typical sections of the brain that if it's there, it's there, period. And it wasn't there. The defense, though, says that you wouldn't necessarily be able to determine that at an autopsy. So she first determines that it's not a suicide because he had no reason to commit suicide. In making that determination, she has not examined his neurologist's records. David was being treated by a neurologist for advancing dementia. Now, Dr. Malusnik will say that she ruled out Alzheimer's disease, but that's not the same as dementia. It's sort of, it's sort of like saying you don't have the flu. Is not the same as saying you don't have a cold. You're not sick. And also, just a few weeks before his death, how he showed up at a law office, Charles Child's uh, law office, and again, was emotional and upset and believed that Rainella had changed their will. Rainella has been trying to tell him, I have not changed my will. He hasn't accepted that. So she says, Let's go ask the lawyer. And so he asked Charles, has she changed her will? And Charles says, David, I can't tell you if she's gone to see a different lawyer, but she hasn't done it through me. And Charles observes that day that David was not himself, that he was duller, uh, that he was emotional, and that he wasn't the David that he knew. David got very emotional and cried with Charles, which was also unusual because David cared about the way he looked, his skin and his hair and his clothes, and he cared about the, the way people thought about him. For him to cry in public in the lawyer's office was completely out of character and struck Charles Child as being very unusual. And, of course, we all know that that loss of emotional control is not uncommon in, in dementia cases. So the defense is saying that all of that is signs of confusion. The emotions are another giveaway that he was, in fact, suffering from at least the early stages of dementia. So what about the fact that he was showing up to doctor's offices all of a sudden acting odd? What's the prosecution saying about that? That uh, Raynell is setting him up by drugging him. That was my concern. I believe I stated that. I said, I don't know how, who, I could never uh, say that. That's not my role, but, but that's my concern. Certainly seeing this combination of drugs, seeing how they're affecting the individual and how he was manifesting certain symptoms and presenting, that was definitely my concern. 
And in the weeks prior to his death, David is being taken to doctors by Rainella because he is not himself, and at one point he predicts his own death at Rainella's hands. Uh, now that I recall back, there were some notations by one of the doctors who said he was, I don't want to use the word paranoid, but worried about her trying to kill him. The date of those, you'd have to look at the records, but now that I think back, yes, it, that was noted, and we did use that. Do you recall writing in one of your medical histories, there was a frank paranoid ideation with the belief that his wife might be trying to kill him. No. And if you believe someone is trying to kill you, and they do kill you, it's not really paranoia, is it? Wouldn't be. When I look at those in combination, no prescription for it, he doesn't know what's going on with himself. But he is aware something is wrong. Right. Which is actually also kind of important thing because frequently with Alzheimer's patients or dementia patients, usually they're not really self-aware to this inability to function properly. It's usually the individuals around them who start bringing up these questions and then basically tends to get them to the doctor to get tested. You know, it's, it's usually starts by the family members and close friends, not necessarily by the individual. Right. So. But in this case, he, as you say, he was clearly aware of something not right. He wasn't feeling right. He expressed that at this doctor's visit, but he, and he expressed it with a law, lawyer visit very shortly before the death. And frequently, if you remember, he said you know, in the morning he cannot even get up. Cindy Welkerson, David's daughter, insists that she was around her dad quite a bit, never saw any kind of signs of dementia or of any sort of depression that would lead to suicide. They went out and had dinner a day or two before the suicide, and she said he seemed fine. Now, Defense Attorney Joshua Hedrick, who has been consulting with us in this case, he's skeptical, though, of Cindy's insistence that her dad didn't have dementia. What Josh says is that her daddy uh, didn't always share personal details with his daughter. I feel for Cindy. My heart goes out to her. It, it, it really does. And I say that because I don't think that anyone ever talked to her like an adult. It was obvious from the testimony that there were a lot of things going on that Cindy didn't know. She didn't know that her grandmother had cancer. She didn't know that her father was being treated for dementia. She didn't know about any of that. I think that her father was protecting her. I think that her father didn't want to tell her things that would be upsetting to her, and so he didn't tell her what was really going on. So if Raynella did kill David, what could possibly be her motive? You know, the prosecution never has to prove motive. It's not an element of the crime. It's not required. But every jury wants to know why. And so one of the, the, the struggles here for the prosecution is to give jurors a motive. Why would Raynella uh, kill this man she says is her beloved David? We didn't, we didn't have a real motive. She was just tired of being married to him, and she was going to get a lot great. of money, a property out of it. She'd gotten him to execute those deeds, 
So, and she was one. She did the deeds, and they had access to all kinds of lawyers. When David Leith and Raynella married, they uh, did mirror wills, and what that effectively did was cut out Cindy Wilkerson, David Leith's daughter. But the prosecution is not being shy, though, about the fact that they say, in addition to just wanting to get rid of her husband, she also had a financial motive. And the defense points out, well, wait, Raynella owned most of that property already. Right. She doesn't and, need to kill anybody to get it. Right. And that's a, that's a real problem for the prosecution because the, the more expensive property is Raynella's. And, you know, David Leith had about 15 acres. And, and Raynella had more than 100. You know, that's, that's a hard sell for the prosecution at this point, which is, which is, again, I think why they are focusing as well on just her general discontent with the marriage and that uh, she and David have been arguing. So does Raynella have an alibi? Well, her defense says she has a really good alibi. Raynella takes great care to show her movements from roughly 9.15 uh, until the time that she shows up back at the farm and finds David's body. So she's got covered from, you know, 9.15-ish to 11.30 when he's found. Do we know at this point when he died? Not in enough detail. The medical examiner puts this at some point between 8 when the daughter leaves and 11.30 when the body's found. And that's about as close as she can get. So their best guess basically was sometime that morning. It was within, within, they, they could get it within a few hours, but not to the minute, right? So sometime that morning was the best they could do. I mean, that's just the science, right? They, they can't, they really can't get it to the minute. She said she left and he was watching um, some, I think, religious show. And her daughter was at home at the time, too, and she left at a certain time to go to school. Well, obviously, we could use her and did in terms of placing the time when she left, her mother being at home at that time, and then with the medical examiner being able to examine the body and tell us approximately the time that he died because of the rigor mortis, the blood, how it gelled you know, and dried, things of that nature. So we were able to peg it to right around the time that Miss Leith was still home or right thereafter. The alibi was so structured and puncticulous in every detail, it looked staged. It, nobody has, can account for every single thing they do. And it begins, her alibi really begins with the fact that her daughter, Katie, was uh, home and didn't leave for school until about 8 a.m., maybe 8.15 at the latest. And then Raynella next appears at Park West Hospital. Went to the hospital with the flowers picked next door, wanted to be seen there, made a point to be seen. And but what was next door, remember? Yeah. Uh, David Lee's house. Yes. Her mother's house, where the gun was. Yeah, where the gun in the holster, where the gun was in the holster in the so, door. So just to be clear on that point, that morning, she said anyway, that she, she went to Mamie's house, yes. right? Yes, that was David Lee's mom. Picks flowers. Yes, she, um, she never did that before much or any. That's what I was going to ask you, whether that was unusual. It was very unusual. 
And uh, and that would have been where the gun was. was. It was in a drawer there inside, in, a, in the holster. On the day of, I think, David's funeral, Cindy goes to Mamie's house, her mm-hmm. grandmother, his mother, to get her clothing for the funeral. But Cindy finds in Mamie's underwear drawer a holster. And at some point, this holster was used to house... Uh, a 38 police positive. ...that belonged to Mamie's husband. Correct. And this turns out to be the gun that was used uh, in David Lee's death. Almost certainly. In the very beginning, there's sort of an open question about this, this pistol, right? Because Raynella says she's never seen this gun before. Everybody remembers David's father owning a 38 pistol, but nobody's really sure if this is the same pistol. And so there's some discussion about where do, you, where do we think it came from. And so when she finds the holster, Cindy calls Detective Moyers because uh, she's concerned that this may be related to, to help explain where the gun came from, I think. Who else would have had access to the gun they found next to him? The gun they think was used in the shooting? Only two or three people. It was kept in the underwear drawer at the house where David's mother lived. David's mother obviously had access. She was in the hospital with cancer. That left basically only two people, David and Raynella. Uh, Also potentially Cindy, but Cindy says she was not there until days after her father's death, and that is when she discovered the gun's holster in the underwear drawer. And to be clear, when Cindy discovers this holster... A couple of days after her father's death, presumably the gun had been in the holster before then. When Cindy was at Mamie's house, her grandmother's house, and and made this discovery of the holster with no gun in it, had anybody else been at the house that day? According to her, no. Jurors have now heard closing arguments for both the prosecution and the defense. Matt, what did prosecutors want the jury to know as they got ready to head back for deliberations? How did they frame the case? Well, the prosecution, they know that one thing they do not have, they do not have any kind of a witness putting Raynella at the house at the time of David Leith's death. And so their argument is going to be built pretty much entirely on the forensics. They're going to focus on the three shots, they're going to focus on the order of shots. They're going to focus on the severed brain stem, the, uh, the medical examiner's testimony that there is no way on earth that David Leith could have fired that third and final shot after his death. And Jamie, what about the defense? The defense has really got two positions, if you will. So what Jim Bell is telling, wants this jury to believe is that that one he has shown through experts that there that this could be a suicide that there is reasonable doubt on whether it was a murder at all and he points to the fact that three shot suicides although rare can occur points out that david had been depressed and upset and possibly had dementia pointing out that he had no enemies whatsoever, that he and Raynella were in a very loving, wonderful relationship, 
that Rainella had no motive whatsoever to kill this man. So the defense, on the one hand, is saying it's a suicide. It's an unusual kind of suicide, but suicide nonetheless. And, jury, if you don't buy that one, then Cindy did it. At the end of deliberations, the jury was deadlocked. It was 11 to 1. One person held out that could not not agree with a guilty verdict. We weren't happy. We knew because it was a circumstantial case that it would be difficult. And because it had uh, languished all those years, it was in essence a cold case, we knew it would be difficult. It was declared a mistrial. But another one is coming. On the next episode of Suspicion... What he simply does is look over at the state and say, you say she did it, then prove it. We don't have to prove nothing. I think he saw that maybe, you know, in the previous trial, it didn't go exactly the way he wanted it. Maybe there was one holdout, but you had 11 that thought she was guilty. What they wanted to show was that Somebody in law enforcement could have gone in, gotten the gun, opened it up, taken the hulls out and put them in a different order, shut them out and then walked out with the gun. Suspicion is a production of the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network, Tennessee. It is narrated by me, Courtney Roark, written by Jamie Satterfield, and produced by John Garcia, Erica Whitney, and Angela Gosnell. Original theme music by Elijah Newman and Chris Potosik. Sound engineered by Elijah Newman. Letters and transcripts for this episode were read by Tim Dinwiddie. You can subscribe to Suspicion wherever you typically listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. You can also keep up to date with us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SuspicionPod.